Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. As we come to the end of Ruth, we are going to finish out this little book today titled A Spark of Hope in Dark Times, Ruth Chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 18 through 22. Now, you might recognize these names I'm about to give you. Ancestry.com, MyHeritage, FamilySearch, uh, Find My Past, and 23andMe. These have all become popular sites to locate and identify your family tree, your ancestry. You know, there's something innate within all of us that want to find out where we come from. You know, whether it's the country, our, our DNA, you know, our ethnicity, you know, all these things. And what was the journey my family took or our families took, you know, to, to get to this point? And that's something that's always enjoyable to do. I don't know how many of you have, have engaged in those sites and done the research my aunt back in back home, my dad's uh, uh, one of my dad's sisters. She has done some intensive search on finding out the Currington family name and where we come from. But sometimes it's better not to know. But no, we. So it's kind of just interesting. And I just always enjoy listening to her tales of talking about our grandparents and great grandparents and so on and so forth. Most of us, I think, how many of you can go back to at least you both sides of your grandparents and great grandparents? Can anybody? Does anyone know further back names of great-great-grandparents? A few of you? I, I really couldn't. But, you know, we're not the type of people that do that as much, so sometimes there's a desire to kind of know those types of things. Now, last week, we read the epilogue of the redemption love story that included the marriage of Boaz and Ruth that produced a child, and then that redeeming and restoring Naomi with joy and comfort. What we saw is throughout the calamities and tragedies that Naomi and Ruth suffered, God, or suffered and endured, God never forsake or abandoned them. She learned, Naomi did, that even in her pain, her suffering and trials served the purposes of God's plan to redeem his children from the curse of sin. Now, today we're going to close out this little book as the narrator finishes the story with a genealogy listing 10 generations of Israelites from the tribe of Judah, including the two descendants of Obed as they go into the future in those days, the child of Boaz and Ruth. So with that, Ruth chapter 4, we're looking at verses 18 through 22. The first part of it's here in the monitor so you can follow along. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Abimadab, Abimadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, who we know here, and Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Father, as we come to this, this just seems like a throwaway tagline for us as none of us are related as far as we know to, to anyone in this list. But yet this list is very important as it contains the story of the Bible and it contains your promises. And even from this list, we can learn much about your word and about who you are and your plans for us. So help us as we do this work. May your spirit have free reign and may we respond to his working in our lives. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. 
Now, in our first message of this series, when we opened up the book of Ruth, Pastor Tony Marito informed us that the book of Ruth is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, in that in, that in reading and studying Ruth, you'll see here's the four things we learn, is that we get to see the larger story of God's redeeming grace, as we see that it advances the story of God's grace to Adam's falling race. It magnifies God's has said, his kindness, his mercy, his love, and his faithfulness and unceasing kindness to us. We also get a greater appreciation of God's providence. God is present in the lives of these seemingly insignificant characters, displaying his meticulous providence just as he, as he is at work in our own lives even today. But we also are, we remember God's global mercy as the gospel is not just for the Jews, not from just from the tribe of Judah, not just from those in Bethlehem, but also for the whole world, including Moabites, the wicked Moabites like Ruth. And then lastly, we saw the models of genuine godliness. Ruth inspires us to be loyal, sincere, gracious, courageous, and devoted. Boaz gives us a model of manhood, justice pursuing and not passive, uh, but compassionate and not abusive. Naomi's story engenders, engenders hope in us as she goes from emptiness to fullness in this narrative. Jonathan Rourke uh, out of Vista, California, lists four reasons why we should read this. He says it teaches us to obey God's word, whereas Noah and Elimelech did not. It teaches about divine sovereignty and human responsibility and the tension that's in that in those two things. It helps us to teach to consider the poor and vulnerable as Naomi and Ruth were very poor and very vulnerable. But it also teaches us about our true Redeemer as Boaz points to Jesus Christ. So the question, though, that you and I may ask as we read these last five verses of Ruth is what is the purpose of this genealogy? Why list these 10 men? How is this profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, and training in righteousness? How does this help me be a better husband, a better, uh, a better wife, or a better employer, or whatever you may be asking? And I think that's a great, great question. Many of us have probably started a Bible plan only to find ourselves, whether it's in Leviticus or Chronicles or somewhere, and we come against one of these genealogies, and all of a sudden, it just goes kaput. I mean, especially when you get in First Chronicles, where the first seven or eight chapters is nothing but, and this begot this, and begot this, and begot that. And that can be really tough, especially half the time, or more than half the time, I would say. We don't even know how to pronounce the people's names. So what do we do about that? In the Old Testament, we find at least five instances of the listing of genealogies. Everything from Genesis 5, where we see from Adam to Noah, to Genesis 10, where we see the descendants of Noah's sons. And then we get the genealogy from Shem to Abraham, and then going into Chronicles, where it's just a whole bunch of, like I said, eight chapters worth of genealogy. And even the New Testament consists of two occurrences of the genealogy of Jesus, one from Joseph's side, one from his mother's side, Mary. Now, instead of seeking to put us asleep with useless information or what we may consider useless information, the Holy Spirit includes these genealogies, this list of ancestors and descendants for our edification and sanctification, which is odd. 
In other words, just what we read, how does the fact that Abedimedeb uh, uh, beget this one was the father, how is that good for my sin? How does that make me more like Christ and freer from sin? How does it build the church up and how does it edify us? Well, that's what I want to tackle for us this morning. You and I need to realize, unlike us today, the Hebrews and many in the ancient world kept meticulous records to keep track of who would be uh, labeled as a Jew, as a Hebrew. Also, they used it to say who would be able to be qualified to be a priest, a high priest, or who could be a king, the line of Judah. And the priests, the tribe of Levites, they had to be in those. So this is the way they kept track of those types of things. They served as administrative tools, kind of like what you and I would think of the census today, to prove who owned land and how it was to be allotted. Remember, each family got a certain point of land. That was the whole concept of Naomi needing to be redeemed so that the land of her husband would not be lost. Theologian Daniel Block notes that genealogies gave accounts of men and their descendants. He writes that, and you'll see this here on the bulletin or on the monitor, I believe, that in the ancient world, genealogies represented an efficient and economic way of writing history, of keeping track. And they tended to be of two types. Now, I know this here is a little bit more, uh, uh, um, a little bit more academic, but stay with me if you would. One, genealogies that display the ethnic relationships among families, clans, and tribes, and even nations by showing the descent from a common ancestor. So Abraham beget uh, Jacob, or Isaac, and Isaac beget... So it it gives us that, that ethnic line of where someone belongs. But then number two is that they trace the line of descent from the first name entered into the last century usually intended to legitimize and to establish the came of the person last name. So in other words, David beget Solomon, who beget this, who beget that, who was the, who then beget Jesus. It was a way to make a legitimate claim that this person could hold this official office. It could be the king. It could be one of the, the priests. It could be the high priest, which could only come from one line of Levi. Uh, as we go on here, he notes that, that the genealogy at the end of Ruth falls in this category. It's going to tell us who is going to be the legitimate uh, line of kings. It points out David will eventually become Israel's greatest king. In this case, the author points out that Obed, the son of, uh, the son of Boaz and Ruth, comes from the line of Perez, the son of Judah. Now, I think I have this family tree here. And you see Naomi... And then her daughter, Ruth, and then she marries Boaz, who then begets Obed, who begets Jesse, who begets David, who becomes the king of Israel. And as you and I know now, as we go into Matthew and Luke, we see that eventually from that line comes Jesus. Jesus is the legitimate line of David. He hence then can be king. And that was very important in those days. Now, this is important because Yahweh had promised is that the kings of Israel would come from the line of Judah. You might recall that Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Esau and Jacob. God chose Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And out of those 12 sons come the 12 tribes of Israel. But it was only going to be the line of Judah that would be able to rule. We'll see this here on the monitor in Genesis 49 near the end of Jacob's death. He goes to bless his sons. And to Judah, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Speaking about victory. Your father's son shall bow down before you. This is showing that even his brothers now are going to bow down. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. As he goes on, then I think in the next slide there, the verse there, he stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's speaking about ruling as a king, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of his people. So it was very important for us to show that Jesus, who would come from the tribe of Judah, and in this case, Obed is from that tribe. Dr. Block notes that all the messianic hopes of Israel are grounded in David, hence why the author wants us to know who Boaz and Ruth's son would eventually be the descent or ancestor of. He, resent, he represents, speaking of King David, the pinnacle of the Old Testament history and the climax of Perez's genealogy. As you recall, the time of Boaz and Ruth were very dear, dire and very dark times. In Judges 21, we read, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We looked at that last year. Why did everyone did what would do what was right in their own eyes? Because there was no king, there was no ruler. There was no one to lead them and to rule into righteousness. Israel needed a king. 400 years before the book of Ruth, Yahweh had promised that he would provide that king and that the arrival of a king would bring hope to a desperate people. A king would do this by gathering the 12 tribes into one cohesive nation. As you and I opened up into Judges and in, in the background of Ruth, the 12 tribes are all kind of separate. They're all kind of doing their own thing. There is no one that's bringing them into cohesiveness. But a king will do that. The king will also secure the land from the remaining enemies, Moab, the Philistines, and so on. Their, their enemies were still living among them. They had not driven them all out, and so they would need a king who would make them into one nation and then drive out their enemies so that they could then provide prosperity for the people that comes from the blessings of obeying God. Now, the book of Ruth was written most likely during the days of King David. That's the only way they would know who David was. And they look back to God's providence and the choices of our three characters in setting up the appearance of Israel's deliverance from its enemies, both foreign and domestic. Again, the 12 tribes not only were struggling with those like Moab, the Philistines, so on and so forth, but their own hearts, doing what was right in their own hearts. They needed a king to provide these things for them. Again, we're indebted to Daniel Block, who writes, looking on the monitor, that this book and this genealogy demonstrates in the dark days of the judges, the chosen line is presented not by heroic exploits, by deliverers or kings, but by the good hand of God, who rewards good people with a fullness beyond all imagination. So now you and I look at Jesus Christ, his birth, and then we look at he comes from David. But as you and I look at David, it comes not it comes from Boaz and Ruth. We're not talking about extraordinary people here. Boaz is not some type of knight in shining arming, slaying dragon, so to speak, other than showing kindness 
and demonstrating hospitality and being generous. It was his being a worthy man of being obedient to God is what won the victory. And so you and I, many times, we're thinking, we need Pauls, right? We need Peters. We need Davids. We need Abrahams. And we need Moses. In reality, God is looking for weak people that he may strengthen as they obey him to change. See, that's what's going to change a a marriage that's rocky. That's what's going to change in families that are struggling or kids who are struggling with something. It's it's that when we're struggling at work or just struggling with sin is we just need a calm trust in the providence of God. During the series, we looked at two main truths that were very important for you and I to grasp and understand. One was the sovereignty and providence of God. The genealogies, as you and I read this last part, demonstrates the faithfulness of God throughout the generations and his sovereign providential hand in the annals of time and in the affairs of men. He was involved intimately in the day-to-day workings of life. But then we also learn about the importance of human choices. That's the kindness, the hospitality, the generosity and loyalty of Boaz and Ruth as they served the purposes of God in providing the future king of Israel and an extension, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God from humble beginnings. So these two work together to accomplish God's plan in life. To summarize, God's hand is on the very fabric of time in our everyday lives, and he uses infallible men and women to accomplish his purposes and plan. You can see this clearly in the family tree of Boaz and Ruth, and I want to show this again. I think you might be able to see it. You might remember the story of Abraham, his God had called him out. He was an idol worshiper, but God called and said, come to the land and I will give you and I will make you a father of many nations. It was to Abraham that he gave the promises. But you might remember his nephew, Lot. It was his son, nephew. But Lot made a different choice. He chose not to follow with Abraham. He chose to go to Sodom. And you and I know the story there. But then from Abraham, we find that we see that we have Judah. But then Judah, as you look there, made a bad decision, was was not an honorable man, and wound up having a son named Perez by his daughter-in-law, who he thought at the time was pretending to be a prostitute. But then you see from Perez's line, we then see Boaz, and then Boaz comes from what? From the line of Lot. They're actually separated cousins from several ways. But remember Lot and Moab. Moab is the son of Lot being drunk and having sex with his daughters. Moab and um, Ammon. And so Ruth comes from a, what you and I would call an impure line. Well, but so in the same way, so does Perez. But yet God honors that. And through those two people, Boaz and Ruth, we see that God's hand is moving, but also their choices to Obed, to Jesse, to David, to eventually Christ. So in there, you see God's hands working throughout history, even though men and women were making evil, sinful choices. God's plan cannot be thwarted. You may recall John Piper, who writes that the providence of God 
is his purposeful sovereignty. And I love that phrase. In other words, it's not fate, but a purposeful sovereignty by which God will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. And so you and I are going to find out what his ultimate goal is here this morning. But he goes on to say God's providence carries his plan into action. It guides all things towards his ultimate goal and leads to final consummation. Just hold that up for a moment because I want us to grasp this. So each and every moment of your life is guided by God's sovereignty. People say, well, does God decide who wins the Super Bowl? The answer to this would be yes. Is he's going to decide who's going to win the mega billions? Billions, I guess now, right? I don't know if anyone won this Friday. But yes, he knows the sparrow that falls. He knows the hair on, the, on, on my head. He, he knows the day that I will die. He knows the day that I was going to be born. <coughs> all of this is his purpose. And he will be successful in all he does. Now, when you and I first learn this, this can be overwhelming. Because it's like, oh my goodness, every day of my life is to create every moment? Yes, it is. But what you and I have to face is we also have to recognize that with this, we must know that God is good. And remember, we did that several weeks ago. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Which goes to our next, our next one is again, just as a reminder that Wayne Grumman notes that you and I can trust and find comfort in the purpose sovereignty of God because the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good. Not a poll, not Twitter, not Instagram, no one else but God. And that all God is and does is worthy of approval. Everything that God does is good. And I'll have to tell you, that's very difficult to accept. Dawn and I, and I don't want to push out names, but people that we know from our past, people that meant a lot to us, one of them is at home spending her last days with her family because of breast cancer, and they've done all that they could. And she's able to spend much pain. Then we have another friend who has a disease that has wiped her mind and put her in much, much pain, and she's away from her family and not going to be able to spend any quality time with them, both expecting death at any moment. Now, for us, it's difficult. You're saying that God is good if he gives my child cancer? Are you saying God is good if he's, if he's having me struggle in my life, if I'm struggling financially or mentally or romantic? This is God's goodness? The Bible tells us that it is. Remember, we talked about Naomi. When she saw the providence of God, yet her own civil choices... She accused God of guilt. But you and I have to realize that all that Naomi and Ruth went through was good. And we're going to share with you in a minute here that not only was it good, but it was the best possible scenario that could have happened in the mind of God. The book of Ruth serves to progress the story of the Bible. You're going to hear me say it. You're going to grimace. The prince slays the dragon and wins the girl. This is what the Bible is telling us. But in this story, the story is broken up, as you know, into four themes or chapters. The creation, the fall, the redemption, 
and the consummation or the recreation. And in it, we remember real quickly that in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's creation. But then in chapter 3, we see the fall of man. But in chapters 3 or chapters 3, verse 15, immediately we get to the chapter of redemption. So creation and fall take place within the first three chapters. But redemption comes in in the middle and says, God says, but I am going to redeem mankind from the curse of sin and death. So the majority of the Bible, all the way up to the Gospels, is the story of redemption. And that's where you and I find Ruth. That's why we call it a story of redemption, a love story, God redeeming his people. And then as we get into the rest of the scriptures, we'll see the consummation is, is pointed towards as we think the day when Christ returns. And it serves to help us to remind us that that redemption, even in dark, desperate times, is continuing. And let me say in the same way, even today as we look at this world and we look at all that's going on, the story of redemption has been completed in Christ, but we are still waiting for that final consummation when Christ returns. So it's important for us to know where we are in the story of the Bible. Scripture reveals that from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to, to Jacob to Judah to Perez, then David, the promise is that the prince will come. You and I now can look back 2,000 years ago to that promise being fulfilled, but yet he will come once again. Of course, you and I may argue why has God ordered and decreed the world this way? Why does he allow suffering and evil to exist? Why didn't he stop Adam and Satan from sinning? If God is good, why is there suffering in this world? These are all good questions that theologians and philosophers and great thinkers have debated for millenniums. We may question why did Naomi and Ruth have to suffer the calamities of famine? In the tragedy of death, what purpose did their suffering do? How is God glorified in their desperation? You may cry that today. God, how are you glorified in what you're doing in my life today or in the world today? How is it good? How is it wise? And I think these are questions that we need to ask because as we said in the beginning of our, of our worship from Deuteronomy 29, 29, there are some things that God has held secret away from us. But there are some things, excuse me, that God has chosen to reveal to us. And that's through his world or through his word. So you and I can answer these questions. Though you and I are finite and fallible in our minds and understanding, God has not left us without an answer. In scripture, God has revealed his purposes or at least all that we are intended to know, to understand, and to obey. Now this morning we're indebted to the great faithful work of Scott Christensen, who gives a defense of God's sovereignty's God's sovereign glory, excuse me, in his book, What About Evil? We, we took this through our adult core class, I think, last year or the year before, and I recommend a book. It's a thick book, but it is a very good book. And in this book, he answers this question of how does this bring God's glory when what he calls the greater glory or the greater good. And what he says, the greatest good is what will bring God the greatest glory 
and his greatest glory will always be tied to the greatest good. So whatever brings God's glory is always his greatest good. In other words, God doesn't do things halfway. He doesn't say, oh, that's good enough for church work. Or, you know what, I'm working in your life, but hey, I messed up a little bit, but you know what, a little bit of spit and shine, that should be fine. He then lists five truths about God's greatest good that I think we need to understand. I believe I might have these on here so you can write them down or take a picture, however you like to do it. It's number one, you and and I need to understand that God's ultimate purpose in creation is to supremely magnify his glory. And hold that there. Because this right here is where you and I struggle. Because you and I think that life is about me. It's about you. It's about how you feel. You don't understand how I feel. You don't understand my feelings. You don't understand what I'm trying to say. What we need to understand is that God is all about his glory. See, we think that God now is like a genie, you know, like from Aladdin. We rub the lamp and he comes out and he does our bidding. He does what we want him to do, but that's not who God is. God is not Santa Claus that we just stand there and say, well, here's my wish list. And he's not a grandpa that'll do anything you ask him because you're his grandkids. Everything God does is for his glory, but it happens to also be for your good. But God's glory is the most important thing that you need to understand. I think I have a couple verses here. Do I have that up there, Landon? Psalms 115 and Psalms uh, Romans 11, where it says, Our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. And for from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever and amen. I may not have had those up there, but Psalms 115.3, write that down. Take a, take a moment to read that later. Our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. So God's ultimate purpose in creation is to supremely magnify his glory, not our own. Number two, God's glory is supremely magnified in the atoning work of Christ. So God's glory is made known in the atoning work, in the work of Jesus Christ. Christ. Hence, what we need to understand the story of the Bible is Obed beget Jesse, who beget uh, David, who then begets Jesus. Romans 4.25, that says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus was sent down to glorify God by reconciling us to himself. The crucifixion and resurrection of Christ must be seen as a unified work that the triune God accomplishes for salvation. But yet in that salvation, it's not just because he could save us, but because that would glorify him is that he would love us. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Because it glorifies, it magnifies who God is. Number three, the atoning work then, and you can see these are building upon each other. Then the atoning work of Christ is the sole means of redemption. It's not through sacraments. It's not through some sacrifice. It's not through any of these things that all the world kind of comes up with and develops so they can justify themselves. But it's only through the work of Christ. I I want to sit here for a moment 
Because I really want to know for you, don't answer this out loud. But if you were stand before Jesus at the gates of heaven, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? Is because you pray, you do good works, you're a good person, you feel saved. None of that will work. It's only through what Christ has done. You see, we are saved not by our works, but through the works of Christ. So we are saved by works, by the works of Christ. What you and I are saved by was when we put our faith, we put our trust that God has accepted what Christ did on our behalf. That's so important. And I need you to grasp that. For the last thing I want is for anyone who's ever heard me speak, anyone that's ever heard us teach, any one of us that have heard us share the gospel, for you to get to heaven and not know the true answer. I am here because of the work of Christ. For that is what brings God the most glory. The primary focus of atoning work of Christ is the redemption of human beings. God's image-bearing creatures. Not the animal or plant kingdoms. For those of us that he breathed life into. The human race estranged itself from its creator for our rebellion. But God, in his surprising and magnificent grace, chose a remnant of rebels for reconciliation. Jesus, it says in Acts, that was the stone that was rejected. He has now become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no other name except by him. And number four, as we continue to understand the greater glory, that all things that God does is for his glory, and all that he does is good, is that redemption is unnecessary without the fall. Since God would be glorified by sending his son to die for rebellious sinners, that would bring him the greatest glory and that would be the greatest good, then he must decree that the fall must happen. So with that, did Adam and Eve have a choice? Yes, they did. But was it decreed? Was it ordained by God that they would fall? Yes. So God, when he said it is good, knew that very soon that sin would creep into the world. And even that sin would serve the purposes of God in glorifying himself and that it would be good. It demonstrates that the paradise of the new creation would be a far better, far more glorious than the paradise of, unsil- of the unsullied initial creation. In other words, the cosmos, the cosmos had to pass, Scott Christian says, through a terrible fall to experience this. Lastly, then, then therefore, the fall is necessary to God's ultimate purpose in the creation. To bring him glory and to know that it is good. Once God freely determined to create the world and to maximize his glory, there was no greater way than to do this. So you and I live in the greatest good world that God could create. Of all the worlds and all the scenarios that God could have came up for us to live, this was for God's greater good and glory. So in the same way as you look at your life, 
If you could go back, I'm sure you would say that there are things in my life that I would like to change. Amen, right? I think all of us would be born in a different place, be born, you know, to different parents. I don't know what it might be. Maybe a different economic situation, whatever it may be. Or maybe it's a choice that you made. Maybe it's suffering that you had to endure. I wish I could have lived without this. You need to recognize that whatever circumstance that God has put you in and whatever choices you have made, even in your sinful choices, that has been God's decreed for his greater glory and greater good. That's hard to understand. It's where we got to come and trust. You see, when you and I look at what's going on in the book of Ruth and we see the calamities and the tragedies that these two women are facing, it shows us that God is good because it is God who delivers them out and shows us that even in those tragedies and calamities that God is working and has not forsaken us. Some of you may feel forsaken by God today. You may be feel abandoned. Let me tell you, you are not. The circumstances you find yourself, the troubles, the suffering that you're enduring now, it could be from the circumstance of God and also your own sinful choices. This is God's plan for you. That does not mean that you sit and rest in it and you enjoy it, but it says that you still trust him in the midst of it. Do not accuse him. Do not lose uh, doubt or do lose faith. Do not doubt him, but trust you will be judged for those things and, and, and be rewarded for good choices as well as you will be uh, um, a judge for your bad choices. Those things are real. We can't say, well, who could thwart your will, God? I'm just doing what you told me to do. It doesn't really work in that way. But we must understand that God is good. In our experience, beauty is magnified when it's contrast with ugliness. And many of you and I can understand that when our suffering is the darkest, when it's the hardest, that's when God's glory is greater and God's love is deeper. By God's grace, as we come down here, God's grace, Corey Tin Boom, I think most of you have heard of her. She was a lady who was a young girl who was uh, um, able to overcome the evil of the Holocaust. But she continued to rejoice in the Lord even during those difficult circumstances and the consequences of sin. Saints can persevere this way in our Christian life. Why? Because God is good. He does not promise that he will take away suffering, but many times we must endure. Without God, there's no solution for the pain of the world. We try to distract ourselves. We try to find pleasure and substitute things. But in the end... You and I must embrace what God has brought to us, knowing that all of this is for his glory and our good. And not only that, but it's wise. And it's the best of all possibilities. Some of you are going through some very difficult times. But I want to share with you that God is there. He can strengthen you. He can see you through them. Like Naomi, he can bring comfort and joy but he calls us to obedience, to look at him for encouragement, for that source of comfort. Like the 12 tribes of Israel, along with Naomi and Ruth, you and I needed a king and a redeemer to rescue us from our sins, 
to repair all that has been broken, to redeem us from the curse of sin and death and to reconcile us to the Father. May we glorify the Trinity who guides all of creation to his glory and guides us through the scripture. So let me end with this. Like Boaz, we need to be worthy men, choosing to obey God by loving our neighbor as ourselves. And let me tell you, man, our neighbor means our wives and our children. It means our employer or employees. Men, we need to be worthy men. This world has a dearth of worthy men. The church has a dearth of worthy men, and we need to be that. I am calling you, would you join me in being men who would choose to glorify God in all that they do through generosity, through hospitality, through kindness. Would you join us in being men that are ready for the times? And like Ruth, we need to be loyal friends choosing to follow God rather than our own comfort. In the same way, we need women to be loyal, to be ready to be submissive to their husbands to be ready to parent their children in the fear of the Lord, recognizing that they too are the helpmate who work together to glorify God and is good for all society. Like Naomi, we need to repent, confess our sins against a holy God and find comfort in his goodness when we fail. And may our God in heaven who hears the prayers of his children Make us sufficient for such things. For God is ready to use both the Boazes and the Ruths today to continue his sovereign purpose and plan to reconcile his children back to himself. We are not to give in or to stop until the day that Christ comes. Would you join us in that? That's where we stand this morning. Next week, I'm going to give a message. I want to encourage you to be here. It's called Woke Christianity. How to be a woke Christian. I know that's a big thing going on in all sorts of societies, employees, and works. But there's something that is true about that. And we're going to look at scripture about woke Christianity. I want to close with Psalm 72, just verses 18 through 19. Would you read this out loud? We don't usually do this. But would you read this out loud with me? Ready? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. May that be so in your life, your marriage, your family, your work. May God be glorified in all that you do. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.